In this episode, Gavin Ortland and I talk about Anselm of Canterbury's Pursuit of Joy and Augustine of Hippo's Doctrine of Creation. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Gavin. How are you doing? Hey, good. Good to be with you. So I uh, am excited to have you on Heaven and Earth. I uh, recently read your book on the pursuit of joy in Anselm. I think I got the title wrong, but it's that idea. And I found it really interesting, really helpful practically. And one thing that I found, I mean, just kind of a third level of interest in me, is that you are a Baptist pastor who is writing a commentary on Anselm of Canterbury, an 11th century, I guess he dies in the early 12th century, bishop of, uh, of the church there. So can you maybe just first, before we get into that, kind of just introduce yourself and let us know who you are in terms of like your ministry and maybe academic background? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I'm a pastor at a church in Ojai, which is a little town in uh, California, kind of 80 miles northwest of uh, LA. And uh, I'm married. We have four kids. Uh, I think I just mentioned to you, we just had our fourth last month. So um, the pandemic has been interesting as a parent, uh, very high demand. And um, yeah, my uh, writing tends to be focused on uh, historical theology. That's where my doctoral studies were in. But I'm also interested in other things. I'm, I'm currently doing a, a book on apologetics. So that's kind of my current interest. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the Anselm book too. Good. You're, you're right that there's not a lot of Baptist pastors uh, publishing on, on Anselm. In fact, when I was doing my research for this book, which started out uh, connected to my dissertation, I was saddened by that because I thought almost all of the major players in Anselm scholarship are either secular or Roman Catholic or a few Bartian types, but almost no evangelicals um, and certainly not many Baptist evangelicals. So, um, you know, I don't actually think that that needs to be that way. So that's been something I've been thinking about a great deal. No, and that's that's fascinating. I think you're right. There's a bit of a turn happening where I think a lot of evangelicals are returning to scholarship, kind of finding their identity in the past. And I'd like to talk about that in a moment. But I also kind of want to ask um, just a very basic question. So you're a pastor, full-time pastor. You have a family, and you're also doing this theological work. Now, maybe this is a simple question, but I think it's helpful to, to note or to ask. How do you view a theological thinking? And writing in relationship to your pastoral pastoral ministry okay I have thought a great deal about this especially when I've had other pastors ask me if they should pursue a PhD which is a question that, that people ask a, a lot and I tend to take what I regard as kind of a more balanced view on these things so on the one hand I do think it's unfortunate that um, theology and high-level theology is often seen as um, disconnected from pastoral ministry and is irrelevant to pastoral ministry. And you think of the old, think of a Jonathan Edwards or someone like that. Most of the great theologians in, in the church haven't um, divorced their work from service to the church and from ministry. Um, and I think it's kind of a, a, a function of the modern times that we live where the church and the academy have been pulled apart. And I think that's unfortunate. And I do think that, um, you know, high level of thinking uh, is very relevant for pastoral ministry, especially for pastors who are engaged in regular teaching and preaching ministry. I mean, now there's lots of people who go into ministry and they're not teaching and preaching as much. And um, so there may be different 
emphases for different pastors in terms of how they see their calling and, and what they focus on and how that all plays out in the nuances. But um, I think uh, theological depth is really important. I think there's a hunger for it in the church. I mean, I th especially younger generations rising up, I actually think really hunger for um, theological depth and theological nuance and then applying that to our culture, you know, in, in creative ways. So I don't see it as a downside or as a distraction. But the reason I say I'm a little balanced is I also think that, try to be realistic, I, I don't think every pastor should be, you know, engaging in academic study and publishing at the same level. I think lots of pastors um, are, probably shouldn't pursue like a, a PhD or so. I think most probably shouldn't because of the, what a PhD is and what it's designed to do. I would think a D-min, for instance, might be better suited for some pastors than others. So, you know, I try to be realistic about that because I do think sometimes pastors can feel a pressure to be someone that God isn't calling them to be, that wouldn't be authentic to their gifts or realistic for their family, you know, and their finances and so forth. So, um, but as deeply as someone feels called and able to pursue study, I think that's, um, I think that's something that will strengthen the church. Yeah, and there seems to be a lot of people who are kind of remembering that. I think maybe 100 years ago, this was more common. And then we mm -hmm. kind of lost it for about half a half a century. And now there's kind of been a, a new kind of energy in terms of maybe some of us should pursue theological work because that can contribute to the health of the church. And I think especially as we're kind of entering into a new era of um, just a new technological and scientific era where questions are complex. I even think of transhumanism, some of the ways that people are going to be modifying their bodies, injecting viruses into themselves to time activate later, which by the way is already happening in animals. And so we have to kind of begin to answer those questions. And to do that, you have to have an anthropology and you have to understand like what that means to be someone who's in Christ as a human being and, and so on. So I, I'm uh, happy to see you doing that. And I think, I think some people are called to that and some people will continue to pursue kind of a theological vision and writing ministry. But as you said, I mean, the body of Christ is diverse and so are the gifts and therefore it's not for everyone. Um, right. It's a difference there. I want to just to briefly touch then on, uh, we don't have to camp out on this, but uh, you wrote a book and I think 2019 was published on retrieval. Um, and I haven't read it yet, but my understanding of that kind of retrieval movement is the idea that we should look to the past see how the Holy Spirit has led the church to think about theology, think about all sorts of things uh, for the sake of um, retrieving and discerning that truth to help us think through theology today. How would you kind of define it? And um, how does that maybe shape the way that you do theological ministry today? Hmm. Well, sometimes I just give a shorthand definition of theological retrieval as um, historical theology to the end of constructive theology, which just means we're looking back at, at church history and what the, the theology of the church has been for, as an aid and as a stimulus um, for how we're doing theology today. And oftentimes there's an emphasis in that on what's been neglected or what's been forgotten that we're kind of bringing back into visibility. And my journey on this topic has not been, you know, I, I never set out thinking that I would be interested in that. Uh, basically, it all stems from my own experience of, I know we'll talk about Anselm, but 
um, it'll make me sound kind of like a nerd probably, but when I was a senior in high school, I read Anselm and I, my brother gave me something of his and I, I just found it. Um, I, w- I would describe it by saying it taught me how much fun it can be to think about an idea and uh, specifically his argument that God exists, which is called the ontological argument. And it's based upon the idea of God, whatever you think about whether the argument works or not, I just find it a fascinating idea and it drew me in. And then I started, as I read through Anselm, I just began to feel that there were things present in his theology that I didn't see as much in kind of what you get just growing up, going to church. And I just found it deepened me and, and, you know, introduced new categories for me. And so then subsequent to that experience, I began to think about that and, and try to understand that experience and interpret that. Here I am, an evangelical Protestant, and I'm reading Anselm, and I'm finding great benefit to that. And um, I have thought about that. The book is about that. Uh, two of the reasons I've used to explain why retrieval is important, um, one is the doctrine of the church. You know, uh, just as we're called to not be a lone ranger Christian today, and just follow Jesus without a connection to the corporate body. That corporate body has a historical dimension too. We're connected to the body of Christ, not just around the globe, but throughout history. And so one reason we should care about what the church has thought is that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're a part of our spiritual family. Another reason would be that we live in history, and we are profoundly influenced by what has come before us. It's really not a question of, from, in my opinion, whether we'll be influenced by history, but more the extent to which we're aware of that. And so I, I just think there's real value in understanding the past for the sake of knowing how to function in the present. And I think that's true for the church. And the big picture for me is evangelicalism right now. We have a lot of challenges. I'm an evangelical Christian, but I admit that there's times where I've struggled with feeling disillusioned with evangelicalism uh, based on everything that's happening in our culture right now. And um, just just burdened for areas where I would love to see us strengthened and more fruitful. And I, I do think that historical theology is one tool that can help us. And just a theological deepening. It can give perspective on the present moment, the uniquenesses of our culture. You know, we're not the first people to face a hostile and changing culture. There's so much we can learn from the early church, for example. I mean, that'd be one shining example right there. But in many other ways, too, I think I think as evangelicals particularly, we tend to be more historically short-sighted, and I think we have a lot to learn. Now, you said something uh, about Anselm that interested me, that you, are, you were just kind of fascinated or drawn into the idea of the ontological argument, just, just the sense of kind of wonder and being drawn into it. And I kind of have to wonder if that's something that we either undervalue or don't consider maybe as evangelicals that there's, you know, God created the universe to reflect his glory, to to show us effects that can draw us back to that wonderful first cause who he is. And I think sometimes we, we kind of overlook how beautiful and wonderful ideas can be true ideas can be. So I'd be curious if we kind of jump into Anselm for a second and maybe you could first, um, because your book was on the Prislogion. Just kind of first uh, tell me what the book is about. I mean, I know because I read it, but, you know, kind of tell me for other people. And then um, then we can maybe get into some of the pieces of the argument that you made and, and some of Anselm's arguments. So, so what is the Prislogion? What is it in the first place? 
Okay. Okay. So Anselm was a monk, and the beginnings of this book, this book, the Prosologion, is a follow-up book to an earlier book called the Monologion. And the Monologion was written because uh, as a monk, Anselm would have all of these discussions with other monks about theology. One of the, the things they would do, I think sometimes we think of the Middle Ages as an intellectually dark time, but actually these monasteries were very, um, I mean, they spent a lot of time thinking and working out theology. And the monks basically asked him to write a book to help them meditate on the divine essence, to help them meditate on who God is in his essence. And the first attempt that he had at that was the Monologion, which is this much longer book. And Anselm basically said that he had an experience after writing that book during prayer uh, that was a very profound experience for him. And in that experience, he came to see that all these different arguments in the first book, Monologion, could be condensed into one single argument. And so the Prosologion is that one argument. And the one argument has to do with God being. Um, Here's the technical way of putting it, uh, that than which nothing greater can be thought. So you can't think of anything that is greater than God. And the whole book is a prayer, and he's basically asking to see God's essence and to meditate upon God's essence um, because he believes that's what human beings were created for. He thinks that's what the human heart was created to do is um, we, we, we exist for what he called the beatific vision or the happy-making vision, which is seeing God's essence, which we will enjoy in heaven. And it's the ultimate human experience. It's what happiness consists of. And every other happiness is just a reflection of that. And the whole book is about how God is the answer to that longing. And so it's a prayer. He first proves that God exists from that argument, because if he's that in which nothing greater can be thought, he has to exist. Otherwise, the God that did exist would be greater. So that's the famous argument. But then, and this is where my interest has been, he goes on from that to prove all these other things about God and it culminates in God as kind of the, the fulfillment of all human longing. And so, you know, it's, it's a fascinating book. It's different from the kind of book that probably most evangelical Christians read. Um, I think what I just walk away with from it, there's the profundity of it in how he's thinking about God, but that combined with, his vision of happiness in God. I mean, I, I think a lot of us in the modern world um, don't have as rich a view of happiness and joy as Anselm had. And it's just wonderful to reflect upon that and think about this vision of just supreme joy at beholding the essence of God. And um, I tend to think that a theology book like that, it doesn't necessarily have like a direct application for your ministry or your life. It's not as though, oh, because I read the Prosologion, we're going to be restructuring our church service in this particular way or something like that. Nonetheless, to have a, a vision of, of God, like the kind that that book offers, just shapes you as a person. And that's what I've experienced from it. So I don't want to be overly pushing, you know, deep classic texts onto every Christian. At the same time, I really do think there's value in reading a book like that. And I think it's a very profound book. Mm -hmm. Well, I found your uh, book, which I've on Anselm recently that I read really helpful for me personally, because I told you kind of before we started recording that I, I've read Anselm before, but I always found him a little bit hard to read, um, hard to follow. And 
in at least in some of his arguments, he's not necessarily doing kind of a scriptural exegesis, which, you know, for most Christians that feels important. And in fact, in the Prologion itself, um, I think he alludes to scriptural texts, but I don't, I don't think he cites any. Is that correct? Well, there are citations, but you're right that he's not arguing from the scripture. Yeah, okay. He's not like wielding biblical authority in it, but he'll reference like the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, which is from the Psalms. Or there are a lot, a lot of biblical quotations in, 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 in Prosopogian 1, for instance, and elsewhere. But you're right, he's not arguing from scripture. It's right. a by reason alone method, which means he's not assuming it's authority. So maybe to speak to that, because I think other people who maybe will pick him up, who are evangelical, will see, okay, so he's arguing from reason, by reason alone, but we're so used to arguing from scripture as our final authority. Um, so we might, like for me, I, I'll just be honest, it, it kind of turns me off a little bit, or used to anyways. I think, actually, probably until I read your book. Not that I didn't appreciate his his intelligence as a, as a thinker, but I think it really took your book to kind of turn a switch off in my mind where I was like, oh, no, I can appreciate what he's doing. I get it now because I think I was reading it like some of the people you, um, you summarized who really kind of focus on the, the ontological argument, which is just chapters two, three, and four, or really I think three and four technically, but two to four. And then you kind of just kind of scan through the rest and you're like, okay, interesting. <laughs> and you never hit on his main point, which you mentioned the pursuit of that vision of God that meditating on, on his essence for the sake of joy. So could you just kind of speak to like, wh why should someone appreciate what he's doing, even though he's using the method of by reason alone? Yeah. Two things that have helped me think about that. One is a more technical point that the phrase by reason alone, and this is something I tackle in the book, doesn't mean reason instead of faith. It means reason instead of an authority. So he's, in his context, a common way of arguing would be to simply, um, you know, quote scripture or other theological authorities. St. Augustine would be a big one at that time in history. And then that's, that settles it, you know, and it's just a matter of who has more quotes. <laughs> in some of the theological disputes from that time earlier in the early med medieval time, you can read these debates and that's kind of how it, it functioned. And Anselm isn't saying that those theological authorities aren't important. He has a very high view of scripture. I mean, he, he really he does. And he does actually still quote from the Bible in these kinds of works. But in those two works and another book he wrote called Why the God-Man, a few others, he has this particular method. And the goal of it is not to set aside faith, but it's to simply not assume the authority of scripture. And the reason for that is he, he wants to help people understand and embrace the truth in their heart. He wants these other monks to meditate upon the, the truths that he's talking about. It's not a knock against scripture. And that's the second thing I would say is I do think that as much as I'm an evangelical and adhere to the fact that um, scripture is uh, primary, scripture is our ultimate norming norm, scripture is our ultimate court of appeal. I do worry, especially at the popular level, that many evangelicals have a, an unhealthy biblicist kind of instinct, which itself isn't really supported by the Bible, but tends to stretch out the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia for all human knowledge, as though we don't really need, all we ever need to do is look up chapter and verses. And um, that's not actually the kind of 
worldview that I think the Bible itself would encourage us to have. I mean, just think of the way God gives Solomon knowledge and how vast and encompassing it is. Uh, or just think of the way the Bible describes itself. It's not an encyclopedia where you just look up whatever you're looking for. So I, I think many evangelicals, we, you know, I've heard evangelicals say we shouldn't study philosophy, for example, because the only thing said about philosophy in the New Testament is something negative. And, um, and I've, in other contexts, too, I've been aware sometimes evangelicals just having a very narrow method. And I actually do think that's sometimes why we get into trouble with doctrines like the Trinity, where people are saying something that's actually very wide from the tradition and from what most Christians have thought without even realizing it, because we've got more of a me and my Bible method of just works. So I, I would just say, I think there's value in a book like Anselm's in at least exploring um, is what he is saying consistent with scripture. And um, are there things about his method that might stretch us in certain ways or cultivate skills and sensitivities that we might not have just from um, the exegesis of scripture alone? And none of that is because scripture isn't important or infallible or authoritative or anything like that. Um, but it does just reflect the fact that the theological task that we have as people of God is more than simply quoting the Bible. We actually do need to interpret the scripture. And that again involves, that involves many things. One of which I do think is interpreting it in the context of the church, paying attention to what others have, have thought. Mm. I can tell you in my own life, uh, I remember kind of being a little confused and I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but you know, I would kind of read the Bible and I would try to find a truth from it. So I maybe would find two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten 10 Bible verses, kind of organize it. And then whatever that truth is, like God is good. I would basically add up those Bible verses and then I would just stop thinking. Hmm. But uh, I, I don't, I mean, this is not quite accurate, but there, at one point, you know, something switched and I realized Oh, God is real. <laughs> like He's a living being with whom I commune by his spirit indwelling me. And I'm not really just excavating a text for the sake of sort of a dictionary definition, although that is useful. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm actually, use, I'm actually seeing scripture as revelatory of God and him speaking through it to me. And, uh, then there's a real being. And I think this kind of connects with Anselm because he, he affirms scripture. He affirms uh, these first principles of faith. And yet he's really trying to know the God who does exist. He's not questioning. I don't, he's not saying, oh, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. He knows God exists. But he's saying because God exists and God is true and real, then it has to make sense. And not only have to make sense, but I think if I remember, yeah, you do argue for this. There's a sense of involvement in who God is. There's a sense of, uh, I don't know if you use this language, but participation. There's a sense in which you're seeking to see and to taste of a living being to participate in a human way in his essence. So um, Anselm gets there in the last, uh, I think it's the last three chapters or so where he ends on joy. Can you kind of, just move us from, you know, why he starts with the ontological argument and then moves through, I think, Trinity and stuff, but why he, why he is pushing so hard for joy in his work. It is interesting how experiential the book is. 
I mean, anyone who thinks of medieval theology as kind of ivory tower, uh, unemotional, uh, will be will be surprised by that aspect of the book. It's it's so intense. I mean, he's yearning and in anguish and in distress about as much as a human being can be in chapter one, which is the lengthiest chapter, and it's this long introductory prayer. And he's basically saying, "I live as a sinner in this." state of supreme contradiction. If I was made for God, but because of sin, I don't have God. I was made to see God, but sin has marred that and I'm distant from God. And therefore I'm, I'm, I'm not doing the very thing I was designed to do as a human being. And then all throughout the book, my, what I'm arguing in the book is that it's a carefully crafted progression of thought all the way through. It's a simple interpretive strategy. I'm just arguing for a holistic reading. Just read the whole book. And it's amazing how much that hasn't been the case historically because people find the argument for God's existence in chapters two through four so interesting philosophically. But chapter five, at the beginning, starts off saying, what then are you, that thing which nothing greater can be thought? And the whole book just keeps unpacking from the same argument that God is that thing which nothing greater can be thought. All these different doctrines about God. And if nothing else, it's just a helpful tour of theology proper, or the doctrine of God, which is another area that evangelicals sometimes um, assume and don't explore that much. But he ends up with joy. I just think that has to do with his purpose in writing the book. He says that the purpose is to stir up the heart, to meditate upon the divine essence, and he's writing for these other monks to do that. And I think it reflects his view of human beings and the the need for God in every heart. And that is something that is very relevant to consider in the modern era. Just so many people, there's so much emptiness and despair around the world. And it is actually thrilling to consider there's actually an answer to the human heart. There's actually something that fulfills the cravings that go deep within the human heart. We were created to see God. And in, until that is filled, nothing else can, can fill the gap. So I love the sort of experiential aspect of this book. And I think, I think that's its great interest as it unfolds. Now you mentioned earlier that, you know, maybe it doesn't have this kind of massive practical effect, but it's going to draw you in, in some directions of thought. I would, I would almost slightly disagree with you because, I, in, in a silly way, obviously, because I am agreeing with you. But um, you mentioned we're, we're in a time um, where people are, or you didn't mention, we are in a time where people are feeling isolated. There's despair, I think, what you mentioned. And if, if our hearts, if our minds, if our bodies, if we're, if we're truly created to see God, then I, I have to think that practically speaking, being given an example of a meditation on how to see God mm-hmm. could have a kind of a massive practical effect. Yeah, not in like the five steps to get something done type of way, but just in a way of like finding contentment, finding joy, not in what you have or what you've lost, but on God who can no longer, cannot be greater or less than because he's already the best. Um, and I even just know like practically from my heart, and sometimes you get, I get so worried about you know, the, the loss of something that I appreciate or enjoy or things not working out. But at the end of the day, uh, the only thing that I have or the one thing that I do have that can never be changed, can't be greater, can't be lesser, can't be lost, can't be found, is God himself. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would, um, so I think you, you would obviously agree with me, but I just find things like this, while they are hard to understand, to read a book like Proslogion and even your commentary on it, um, can be eminently helpful, even for the average person. 
I think. I mean, maybe you have to learn a little bit of how to read these types of books, but your commentary can help on that, I'm sure. Uh, what, as a pastor, do you have any kind of thoughts or reflections on, on what I was just talking about? I think you're right. I mean, one example of that would be uh, thinking about heaven. I, I've known as a pastor many Christians who struggle to look forward to heaven. Usually it's just we don't think about it enough at all. But in some cases, I've actually known many Christians who are afraid of heaven for some reason or another. They may not say that, but that's kind of the reality. It's, it feels like this frightening place. So in the book, where Anselm ends up is this vision of joy in heaven specifically. And I'd never thought before, this is to your point of the practical benefits, kind of a specific practical thing to walk away with. I'd never thought before about how uh, love in heaven will compound the joy of heaven. But that's the emphasis of Persogion chapter 25, the final climactic chapter, where he basically says, look, in heaven you're perfect, therefore you obey the golden rule perfectly. So if there's two people in heaven, they have double the joy because they're infinitely happy themselves, but fulfilling the golden rule, they're infinitely happy at their neighbor's joy as well because they love their neighbors themselves. So now I think of not just two, but all the saints and angels. And he talks about that as this infinite multiplication of joy, continually compounding and growing. Well, I think that's a pretty cool thought. I had never thought about that before, before I read Anselm. It just hadn't occurred to me. I, I, without realizing it, I'd be, been thinking of heaven in a more individualistic way. But it's a great insight. And so that's an example of what you're saying, of there's these specific things we can learn. And I agree with you, too, that it, people can pick it up and, and follow the thought. It's not the easiest read in the world. On the other hand, I actually think it would be easier than a lot of modern books. It's shorter, and it's more, it has an honest earnestness to it that some academic books certainly seem to lack. And so I think, I agree with you, I think if a Christian just sits down and reads through the Prosologion with a humble heart, oh, will they benefit from it in specific ways? Absolutely, uh, I think so. Hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. I think a lot of, you know, one thing you find with these kind of classic books, they seem like they would be too hard to understand. But when you get to it, I mean, they're often easier. Um, and again, this is a little bit of a hard book in certain areas because of the doctrine of God, but it's fascinating. Now, one thing you said that interests me, um, I think sometimes people who have a more classical view of God are accused of talking about a God who is static and kind of boring, and that kind of makes heaven seem boring. But it's kind of surprising, and I don't think this is uncommon, but it's surprising that Anselm seems, sees heaven as a collection of personalities who are able to compound their love in a sort of, you know, community of, of people in heaven. And I think that maybe kind of uh, contradicts some of the accounts of this kind of solitary God and kind of boring heaven sphere, even from a uh, intensely medieval figure like Anselm. Um, now, I kind of want to segue a little bit. We, we talked about the, the final end, which is, which is heaven. And, you know, some people call it the new heavens and new earth. I mean, scripture does. So some people do too. <laughs> um, it strikes me that our final end, Christians have said, is very much like our beginning, our creation. Now, I don't know if this is where you're, where you're going with some, uh, your future publication, but I know that you're writing on Augustine's view of creation. Mm -hmm. And we can get right into that, but I'd kind of be curious to see your reflections on creation and new creation and how they relate to one another, the fall in between, because it does seem to be like our future is just like our beginning. There's a kind of a union of what we're truly meant to be naturally, which 
as you noted, is to see God to be fulfilled in him. Could you just kind of just explore that briefly? I think it'd be useful to hear, given that you spent a lot of time on this. Mm. Well, I haven't personally probed this exact question in great detail uh, myself. I, I have reflected on it a little bit and just uh, had the thought that um, I do think there are extremes we could go to in either direction where there are some who think of the Garden of Eden, what Adam and Eve experienced prior to this, the fall will be exact, the exact same as what we experience in the new heavens and the new earth. And I actually think um, there's probably some reasons to not think that because Adam and Eve are in this unique state of affairs where they're being tested. And it's more interesting to wonder, I think, and this is what a lot of the church fathers speculated about, what would have happened had they passed the test? Um, so I, I, I do think there's discontinuity from pre-fall to final redemption. Um, but I think the, the, there's also unity and continuity, and the, the uniting thread as I see it, not being really an expert on this, would be the presence of God. You know, in the Garden of Eden, there's that sense of enjoying access to God in this sort of un, unhindered way in some sense. Obviously, in his transcendence, we're always... Um, distant from God in some way, at least in a like ontological way. But nonetheless, there's no moral cloud between us. Mm -hmm. There's no stained conscience. And that's helpful to remember when we anticipate heaven as well, which is also Anselm's final point. It's not just the communal love. It's that we love the Lord God most and his happiness is, makes us supremely happy. So that's mm -hmm. something that's always good to set our hearts back upon when we anticipate heaven is that the best thing about heaven is not no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, though all that's a part of it. But the best thing is um, Revelation 21, dwelling among us as, you know, I will dwell among you and you will be my people, I will be your God, which is picked up from that refrain all throughout the biblical canon. So um, that's the best part of heaven. We will be with the Lord, and as Anselm says, we will, we will see him. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And it's, it is interesting. It can't be the exact same experience, given the way that it's described and some of the ways to think through it the garden is interesting you have a tree of life and then a tree of good and evil uh and there in it there's a there's a some sort of test happening which is i guess clear from the text they get exiled from life and they gain a new property which ends up being pretty horrible and that property is the ability to discern from good and evil because it strikes me that we don't want to be able to discern from good and evil we want to just always choose good <laughs> um so right. they, they gained something which actually was a loss. It was a privation, although there was an addition of choice. And the more yeah. choices we have, the more... Well, I think, everybody, I think in the modern world, we kind of get this. When, when you are, uh, get crippled because you have 27 choices in front of you, you realize this isn't good. But if you always knew the best choice, if you had kind of perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge of what is good and right and, and just, then you'd actually be much more satisfied, much more happy. You wouldn't be crippled by choice. You wouldn't make bad decisions. In fact, you would be happier because you'd be making, uh, doing good and therefore being how you're created to be. So um, let's then jump into uh, your, your next book. I'd just be curious. Well, tell me, I know you're publishing on this, but it's not out yet, so I haven't read it, but um, Augustine's kind of theology of creation. Can you kind of speak, like, what is, why are you writing that book? Yeah, this, this is a book. It's I'm actually expecting it any day in the mail to see. So oh. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Uh, I just got a note from my publisher last week that they he saw it and then they mailed it off. So um, the mail's a little slower, I think, these days with everything going on. But 
Um, this was a book I, I wrote the year that we lived in Chicago, and I was a part of the creation project, which is uh, happening through at, at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School through the Carl Henry Center there. And just a really cool opportunity we had to go and be a part of that. We were so grateful. It was a great year, kind of a sabbatical for ministry and then a chance to engage. I chose Augustine on creation. I'm, I've been really personally interested in the doctrine of creation, primarily because I've been through my own angst as a Christian about how to think about issues of science and faith. Um, how does the biblical creation account interface with with science and questions of evolution and animal death and all those things. I've kind of just agonized my way through all those topics. But Augustine has been a help to me in that process. Um, he's helpful in many ways. One is creation was actually really important to him. He wrote five commentaries on Genesis. He was extremely interested in it. He was alert to the apologetics type concerns because they were different for him. It wasn't naturalism that was the threat, it was Manichaeism. But the Manichees were still attacking Genesis 1, saying this was crude and unsophisticated. And so he thought a great deal about those things. He was interested in what we would call science and the question of how to relate that to scripture. Uh, I have a chapter in the book on humility. I think he helps us learn a lot about humility, both before scripture, bowing low before God's word, as well as then relating scripture to science and other areas of knowledge. Um, I also think we talked mentioned before about the idea of creation from nothing. There's lots that was important to Augustine about creation that we tend to assume or we don't focus on at all. And so the sad situation is sometimes today, Christians, we fight over the things that are actually, actually more peripheral in the doctrine of creation. And we put all the focus on those things. But the more cardinal Christian doctrines that mark off a Christian worldview as distinctive from other ancient ways of looking at the world, like creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. We just assume or we don't do as much work with. So Augustine's a good reminder of that. And then he just, he treats all of the controversial topics today. Chapters three through five in the book, just walk through, you know, the issues and say, here's what Augustine said. And then the book's all about retrieving that and saying, how might that influence the current debate? And I think mm -hmm. there's, I think his voice is helpful in the current discussions. Yeah, it's striking that, uh what we find really important in the Genesis narratives is, is often kind of a, an explanation for, for why things are like they are today, kind of an explanation for history. Um, but I think some of the earlier Christians, while that was part of it, I'm sure, were m almost more interested in what does it tell you about God and the way in which he's ordered the cosmos? And there's like a, a bit of a different question there. I, and, I, and I don't know, I'm not really a, I don't remember reading Augustine, I guess on his confessions, he does talk about creation. But I'd be curious, is he, I mean, for lack of a better word, doing a sort of theological exegesis to understand who God is in light of his creation of the cosmos? Or what, what would you say his kind of main concern is as he reads these early chapters of Genesis? I do think that uh, what the creation account teaches us about God is very central to his thinking. I have at times felt that the apologetics concern, I mean, that's in a modern mm. word, he wouldn't use that word, but the concern of basically making the Christian faith credible as much as is within our power and as much as is consistent with the truth to those outside of the Christian faith, showing that this is reasonable to believe. Um, I actually think that was a driving concern for him simply because of all of the onslaught 
uh, that he uh, experienced from the Manichaeans. So, you know, throughout, he, he wrote these different commentaries in the literal commentary, which was his final summative commentary, the whole first book of that commentary is sort of asking questions. He's just going through verse by verse saying, well, is it this or is it this? And he doesn't give as many answers. And I remember reading it thinking, gosh, this is more sort of meandering than I expected it to be. But at the very end, he says, what's the point of all these questions? And he depicts these different scenarios of people mocking the, the Christians for their unsophisticated scriptures. Another scenario is Christians, um, you know, being overly intimidated by those criticisms. I mean, it's not hard to apply these categories today. When you think of a Christian who hears, they read Stephen Hawking and Laudenau's book, The Grand Design, and they see these bold claims that they make and they feel kind of intimidated by that. Um, so he envisions all these different scenarios and he says, the whole style of this commentary has been with a concern for this, for how can we um, defend the scripture from these assaults, um, but do so in a way that is wise. He's very concerned about Christians just dismissing genuine knowledge that we can get from science. So there's a famous passage there in book two of uh, basically a warning against anti-scientism. And that is to say, warning Christians not to just assume that the science is always wrong without studying it. And there's a need to actually engage the particulars and, and be humble and, um, you know, listen to what's being presented. So, um, so I just think he, those, that kind of concern is, is very relevant today. That's why I was so interested in, in working with him and learning from him and why I'm so hopeful that others will also, you know, uh, heed what he has to say about those things. That's interesting. So it almost seems like one of the main aspects of retrieval that could be helpful from Augustine is a sort of apologetic or an understanding of how science and, and faith correlate, especially with the Genesis narrative. You know, you know, in the past, actually, I don't really know long, I'm assuming 50 years or so, Christians have battled over evolution, death, and all that kind of thing. Um, what, what do you think Augustine does to contribute to that current conversation, the conversation between the age of the earth, evolution, versus a sort of younger earth, um, no death, like before the fall, what does he contribute that can be helpful in terms of thinking through these things? I know you can't say everything, but maybe just say one thing that you can choose. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I'll give maybe sort of a broad answer to that. And if you want to pursue any of these things, because this is where things get controversial for some. So if you want to pursue these things, just direct me where you want to steer yeah. it. But the broad thing would be, I would say, first of all, because he lived in the fourth and fifth century, he certainly can't be accused of uh, um, you know, caving in to modern, you know, discoveries or something like that. And that's part of the value of engaging him versus if you engage a B.B. Warfield or someone like that, and people will say, oh, well, you know, he was, he was capitulating to the claims of the day. Um, so Augustine, he, you know, he predates. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the things he said, I mean, um, Galileo, uh, Galilei, quoted Augustine about 10 times in propounding his theories because of the same sensitivities that Augustine has about uh, the need to be careful in how we integrate scripture and science. What I found so valuable in him is he, on the one hand, is rock solid to say the Bible is never wrong. It does not err, and it's rash and foolish to accuse it of error. And he's perfectly willing to wield biblical authority to just trounce upon some other claim. I mean, he's not afraid to do that. At the same time, he exhibits this unbelievable 
flexibility and restraint and carefulness in how he correlates biblical claims when they seem to be in conflict with what we would call scientific discovery. Um, he's very careful. He says, proceed with caution. And so, you know, uh, I, I would say Augustine, that, that's kind of an overall thing, I would say, on the specific issues. Augustine doesn't hold to 24-hour days. And um, my appeal on these kinds of matters consistently has not been that anyone need to agree with Augustine or anyone need to agree with um, the non-24-hour day view, but just to recognize that that is not an orthodoxy type issue, that there are really godly Christians who bow low before the text of Scripture, who see it as completely infallible, and yet they arrive at an interpretation of Genesis 1 other than 144 hours total or close to it because of things in the text. And so the chapter on that topic goes through three main reasons in the text that Augustine is saying, these look like really special circumstances, really unusual days. We've got light before we've got the luminaries. Where's the light coming from? Is it going on and off when, you know, a day and night and just sort of flashing on and off everywhere? What's making the earth rotate around? It's, there's no sun yet. You know? um, and then the, the, just the presentation of divine rest on the seventh day is significant to him and the way the word day is used throughout the passage. One of the biggest things that he just, agonizes over and i at times i so funny you wish augustine had had a good editor sometimes because what he'll do is he'll write one view and then a few pages later write another and he won't go back to correct the first one and i actually appreciate that because it shows him struggling with it one of the things he struggled with is why are there why is there no shrub that had yet appeared in genesis 2 4 to 6 when the plants were already created and he's really wrestling with how does that work and so he ultimately believe there is an instantaneous creation that's uh, depicted in a human work week to help people envision and understand, to accommodate a human way of picturing the divine work of creation, but in actuality, and it has to do too with how, um, with angelic knowledge of creation in terms of the language, it's a very kind of complicated and strange view. But ultimately he thinks, flash, boom, Genesis 1 just happened in an instant, which is so interesting. And then I also have treatment of his views of animal death. And then I do talk about evolution and where I think Augustine would come down on that. And that's been, I would say, I, forgive me for going on and on here, just cut me off, but that's been for me personally, the greatest angst of my life in my faith over the last five years. Um, and uh, it's hard as a pastor, particularly working through that issue, but, uh, and I'm, I'm not settled on every detail about how to, how to categorize evolution, but, I do suggest that Augustine would maintain a historical Adam and Eve and maintain a historical fall. Interestingly, he does envision the possibility of a symbolical Adam. And I talk a lot about that and the way he categorizes that. So I basically suggest Augustine would be more cautious in the possibility of, of accommodating evolutionary science to a historical fall, but he wouldn't budge on historical Adam and Eve. And that's kind of my leaning and what I'm encouraging from Augustine, from that, but um, that leaves open a lot of the nuances. So we can pursue any of that further yeah. if you want here. Well, I'd like to ask one, I think one more question on that before we kind of uh, curtail it. But I'd also like to add, um, you do mention, you know, before our kind of current debates, people talked about, you know, Genesis differently. And I just had a couple of things that came to mind um, and I may be getting them slightly wrong because they're kind of off the cuff, but uh, like the Venerable Bede, for example, when he reads Genesis 1, 
Uh, he sees like the words that God speaks. It's not like God's actually articulating and breath is coming out of a human mouth. It doesn't work that way. I mean, God's an in, uh, spiritual being. And therefore, these are sort of, uh, I don't know if he uses language, but accommodations to our ability to understand. I mean, there's no one there to observe it. There was no, if you think about it, no, there's a vacuum. There's nothing to even articulate sound reflected and all that kind of stuff. So it, it actually does have to be an accommodation, even his words. Like they can't be like we're talking right now, given who God is. It would just, well, I mean, it would be very odd if it was. And then I think of Gregory of Nyssa, who wrote uh, this book on the creation of mankind. And I may be getting this wrong, but I think he actually sees Genesis uh, 1 and 2 as being two different creation accounts. So Genesis 1 is about creating humanity as a sort of monad. And then Genesis 2 is this dyadic uh, humanity that separates into two. And uh, so it's a bit of an, uh, an odd view. And, and I might be misrepresenting it. I don't want to make people feel like I know as this is kind of <laughs> in the corner of my brain right now. But why, why I bring that up is I think it's helpful to realize that the way in which many people, at least in North America, are reading Genesis 1 in light of certain debates in the 70s and 80s and 90s is really not how most people have thought about Genesis. In fact, the concerns that we find so important are not, well, not that they're never there, but they're not centrally there. And I think that's partly what you're getting at. I mean, Augustine can say creation's instantaneous. Because why wouldn't it be? <laughs> Simple act of God, it's here. Um, Augustine, I, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, is able to say, look, uh, Adam and Eve could have walked on an ant and killed it in, before the fall. Um, and I think, well, actually, probably most of will be okay with that today. I'm not sure. But it's just kind of interesting, some of the debates we have. So, so one thing I do want to um, just ask you about as a follow-up. Sorry, that was a lot of summary, <laughs> but I want to ask you uh, as a follow-up is maybe just kind of one question before we kind of build uh, down to the end here. Um, you mentioned this, but how would, how do you think Augustine would judge or come down on the idea of an evolutionary process, whether that means a sort of long period of time of animal uh, growth and transformation or periods, uh, long periods between days or whatever, how you mentioned that, how do you think he would judge kind of the scientific doctrine of evolution today? Mm. Or what, or maybe a better question, what guidance would he give us as we approach that question? Yeah. Well, a couple of the things that I think would be uh, relevant there, I think I can probably mention three. Um, one is I've already mentioned, he really does have a respect for what we would call science. The word science really refers to something a little different than what in his context he's thinking. But there are lots of people who studied the natural world and came to had theories about the phases of the moon and why the tides do what they do and um, how the brain relates to the body. You know, what, he, what we would call um, like neuroscience or something like that. And he listened, and I, I have a couple paragraphs in chapter two where I relate kind of how careful he is to listen to those views. And that's what that chapter is all about is his carefulness in, in both, with both scripture and science. He does have a great uh, respect for science. And there's many times where he says, if it's good science, be careful. Don't dismiss it out of hand. Look for ways that you might accommodate good science and scripture. So that doesn't answer your question, but it's just a principial matter that I think Augustine would be respectful to the claim, at least. He would, he would at least say, well, if, if it's a claim of, of that there's good scientific evidence, in this case for evolution, for instance, 
we at least need to do our studies. We need to roll up our sleeves and do our homework and investigate that. Another thing that's relevant is he has a theological framework that allows him to think in terms of gradual means of creation. He, it's, he's famous for this idea of seminal reasons, which is where God, at that instantaneous creation moment, implants seeds into the creation that then subsequently unfold. And the whole idea is that God is just as much the author of um, things that unfold subsequently as he was of those things that he created initially. He uses the metaphor of a tree growing from a seed. He says God's no less the author of the tree, even though it involved water, sunlight, and time. And he uses the specific comparison to human beings. He says, look, God created Adam. He believes Adam was created de novo, though interestingly, he doesn't know whether as a child or as an adult. But he says, nonetheless, it was a, it was a de novo process. It wasn't, Adam didn't have a mom and a dad. Um, and then he says, but you and I do have a mom and a dad, but we're equally created in the image of God. We're equally the reflection of the creator's handiwork. In the one case, it's instantaneous. In the other case, it's gradual. That doesn't mean it's not of God. And so that is a theological framework that could at least um, court evolutionary ways of thinking. It doesn't mean it's decisive in favor of evolution, but it's a sort of theological category that, that and many have argued, I mean, lots of smart people Alistair McGrath has argued that from the idea of seminal reasons that Augustine would be in favor of evolution. The third thing is animal death. He really doesn't have a problem with animal death, in fact. So the Manichaeans were coming along criticizing uh, God's creation because it contains carnivores. And Augustine was just very emphatic that we should be careful not to sit in judgment on that. The mere fact that you know an, a lion could eat you, don't necessarily say that that's evil. Um, it's unpleasant, obviously. But he's very emphatic that, and actually that was consistent among, I can speak at least for Ambrose and Basil, and I can speak for Thomas Aquinas. These theologians didn't think that at the fall, before the fall, it was all herbivores. They thought carnivores were part of the original creation and lions and tigers and crocodiles. And they said, basically, God created these animals for our spiritual instruction. Um, so that we would learn from them and that we shouldn't be self-referential in the judgments we, we make and say, because it could be unpleasant, therefore it's bad. So that was actually a surprise to me to discover not only his view on that, but how strong he is in that. So all of those things are relevant because many of the concerns that some have about evolution are, you know, the, they're not certainly concerns that Augustine would have. Ultimately, I don't think we can say what Augustine would think about evolution he, you know, it's impossible, but I, I, I tend to think he would be at least very patient in exploring the matter. That's helpful. And I think that kind of gives us, rather than just kind of a blank answer, maybe some frameworks to think through some of these key issues that many of us struggle with or that we'll encounter in our life. Um, so I will just say that I would encourage people to read your book when it comes out. I want to. Can you tell me the, uh, the name of the book? It's Augustine's Theology of Creation or... Yeah, it's called Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, and the subtitle is uh, Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy. And that's out this year? Yeah, it, it releases. It's actually available as of this moment on the oh. IVP Academic website, Great. and it'll release on Amazon in just, I think, like two or three weeks. Great. And that'll be at the end of June from who's ever listening to this, June 2020. Uh, and then your book, Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, that's the right title, correct? Uh, that's right. Yep. And there's hopefully a soft cover coming that will be a little bit more affordable. 
Yeah, I apologize for for that for people listening. I, I wish, I, I if it comforts them, I don't make any money off of that book. So, um, and it will be cheaper down the line when the soft cover comes out. Very good. Uh, and then uh, theological retrieval for evangelicals. That's another book of yours, and the title is just that theological retrieval oh, for evangelicals and then <laughs> why we need our past to have a future and that one's already out too um and then i'd like to ask like is there any on some of the topics we talked about are there any books you can throw that you could recommend for people to, to read and pick up i mean other than yours just mine no, yeah just kidding. yours okay that's fine <laughs> i just met you though but fine we'll go back no i well i do think i mean in the spirit of what we're talking about reading some of these ancient people. I mean, reading, mm. so like Basil's Hexameron with a series of sermons on Genesis 1, I think that'd be really valuable for, for there to be more awareness of that and realize, oh my goodness, the historical church didn't think just like a modern American fundamentalist on some of these matters. Um, Augustine's Confessions, you know, he does treat creation in there. In fact, it's puzzled many interpreters that the whole book climaxes into an interpretation of Genesis 1. But that's how important creation was to him. And that's why he concludes the whole thing by focusing on that chapter. Um, so those are great books. I'm just looking over to my creation bookshelf. Um, you know, for people who really want a more academic dive into the hermeneutical issues, I've been really helped by Jack Collins' work. And he has a book with Zondervan Academic called Reading Genesis Well, which was also the product of a cre creation project time that he was there. He was there a year before me. And I, I find that a really sophisticated treatment of the hermeneutics of reading Genesis. Um, he's kind of learning from C.S. Lewis about just how literature works and how, how human communication works. It's really useful. And I always find it helpful to read the Zondervan Counterpoints books. You know, there's a, a, an updated, I think it's four views on creation and evolution, and they have an intelligent design section in there too. Those books are helpful because you see different perspectives. Um, Gosh, I could think of others, but those are just immediately the ones that just came to my mind. Well, that's helpful. Uh, many of us, we can look into those books. And Gavin, thank you so much for talking today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Wyatt. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To hear more, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or elsewhere.